the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us for another installment, uh, a uh, happy and blessed Holy Thursday, as well as Passover to our faithful friends in the audience. Again, you follow us, danprofshow.com. Podcasts are located there, as well as on iTunes and Spotify. Social media, at Dan Prof Show, both on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, uh, one of the important stories today, the jobless claims, another 6.6 million first-time unemployment filers. So that's uh, 17 million in three weeks. Uh, I mean, it's just a staggering number. The Republicans, President Trump, has made the point this week in the briefings, and Mitch McConnell made the point this morning on the Senate floor about the need to enhance the funding for the Payroll Protection Act so as to keep employers with fewer than 500 employees afloat and to keep those employees on their payrolls as much as possible. Here's Mitch McConnell making the case to pump in another 250 billion dollars to the 350 billion that was allocated per the president's request. Soon I will ask unanimous consent to increase the funding for the Paycheck Protection Program to a new total of 600 billion dollars. I'm not talking about changing any policy language that both sides have already negotiated together several weeks ago. I'm literally talking about deleting the number 350 and writing 600 in its place. Let me say that again. We're not talking about making any policy changes. We're literally changing the number 350 to 600. That's all that we're suggesting here today. That, by definition, is a clean bill. But he's got a problem, and the problem are House Democrats. Uh, that's the form the problem takes with Nancy Pelosi. They want another $100 billion for hospitals. They want another $150 billion for states to provide additional support at the state level for small businesses. That sounds curious to me. And, of course, you've got the squad reactivated this week, the Socialist Spice Girls, as I want to call them, arguing that there should be uh, relief and payments to all Americans, an additional round of payments, including people in this country illegally uh, and including those incarcerated, specifically, and this is just a remarkable proposal, Rashida Tlaib, MF or Spice, called for the federal government to immediately issue debit cards preloaded with $2,000 for every person in the United States, including to those who've been here for as little as three months. That card would then be recharged, Andrew Yang style, with $1,000 a month until one year after the end of the coronavirus crisis, whenever that comes. Now, you think that's a remarkable proposal. 
Listen to how she pays for it. Talib offers to pay for it by having the U.S. Mint print two one trillion dollar coins, which her plan says would then be purchased by the Federal Reserve at full face value. Why two one trillion dollar coins? Why not just one two trillion dollar coin? We are living in remarkable times. Six, 17 million people in the last three weeks file first time unemployment filers. Six point six million this week. Again, we are talking about lives versus lives, not lives versus money. We're talking about having an economy or not having an economy. We're talking about the prospect of a higher standard of living or the prospect of a lower standard of living. And you cannot bail yourself out of these choices through the redistribution of other people's money or by printing money or by printing two one trillion dollar coins, for that matter. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend. He is the capitalist pig, Jonathan Honig, also the author of a new textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, a pleasure to be with you. I mean, look, these are historic times. Uh, I'm an investor, and, you know, we haven't seen moves like these in the market. Well, no one living today has really seen moves like this. You you truly have to go back to the 1920s to find anything in history to these, you know, thousand-point swings in the Dow and every other market. They've, they've gone haywire, in my estimation, largely because of exactly what you're describing, not just the impact of the virus, but the impact of the so-called cure. Well, uh, let's separate out some of what's being discussed. I I mean, unless you want to argue about how many new coins should be printed to add up to the money that Rashida Tlaib (laughs) needs for. I mean, what in God's name? Honestly, the people in uh, in her district in Michigan must be so proud. Um, Let's start with the payroll protection program and the idea that, uh, according to Vice President Pence, you've got one hundred billion dollars in loans that are already uh, being processed. Uh, Money's being dispersed through the payroll protection program. And uh, they're worried about demand exceeding the three hundred fifty billion that's been allocated. So thus an, another two hundred fifty billion dollars on top of it. I mean, even uh, if as the, the most radical free marketeer will have to concede federal and state governments broke these businesses. So they have a responsibility to provide recompense, don't they? You said it best. Those unemployment statistics are astounding, but they're not surprising, given the fact that exactly as you're alluding to look when the government requires everyone has to stay home. All these businesses have to shut or, you know, obviously, as we've read about in some locales, they're, you know, literally uh, you're marching people home or putting them in jail or threatening them with fines. So, yeah, you're going to crash the economy. But, you know, to quote uh, a Chicagoan who I know you know well, Dan Rahm Emanuel, what you're seeing here is government never letting a crisis go to waste. Look, the coronavirus exists. So it's impossible to think that there isn't going to be some impact to the economy. But all these programs, Dan, the payroll protection program, you know, the, I mean, as a side note, a, a loan that doesn't have to be paid back is not a loan. <laughs> it's not a loan. Uh, and all these efforts to so-called save the economy, uh, the stimulus, the uh, Today, the Federal Reserve announced that it's going to start buying junk bonds, going yeah. to buy bonds of private company, corporations. All these efforts to so-called save the economy, they're going to have, they are having and they will continue to have a long-term detrimental impact on exactly the people, all of us, but exactly those people that they're intended to help. And then for that, I can only remind you, and I know, you know we talked about this uh, uh, more than a decade ago 
back then the Republicans were arguing against the TARP uh, stimulus, of which was rife with fraud. Uh, remember Maxine Waters' family got the special. I mean, it's all kind of uh, graft and bail and uh, fraud that goes on with, when money government starts shuffling money around. That's exactly what you're seeing, and that's why that's all the stimulus is going to have a negative effect. Well, but 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 I think there I think you have to distinguish between some of the spend and, for example, that payroll protection program because it seems to me. That's a de facto government taking when you say you cannot operate your business through no fault of your own. Uh, you shut people down. Uh, you have a, 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 arguably a constitutional duty to compensate them. Number one. Number two, as we know, just being uh, real politique here, the cost of keeping people on the payroll of these companies is a fraction of what the cost of trying to get people reemployed if you had 30, 40 million people unemployed in a four-week span. Well, I mean, you know, the old saying goes, he who writes the checks makes the rules. And if, if government really wanted to give people more of their money, they would simply cut taxes. But then with all yeah. these grants and loans come stipulations. This is why you've seen in recent weeks the unbelievable phenomena of airlines flying completely empty planes. I know, I believe you've reported on this, flying completely empty planes because the government requires them to maintain routes, maintain. So there's actually no demand, but they're flying empty planes, this time on the taxpayer's dime. So you're going to see the same uh, sort of uh, misallocation and misappropriation of wealth. People, hey, coming up with a few extra employees that maybe they never knew they had or uh, you know, tremendous. Uh, uh, now, now I hear what you're saying. When you force people to to stay home, you force businesses to close. There should be some sort of recompense. But in my estimation, it doesn't come through the legislative branch, which ends up, as you said, uh, Nancy Pelosi and the squad, and even some Republicans advocating for this special interest and that special interest, and minority-owned and farmers, and nothing against any individual interest. But you're destroying the actual engine. I mean, Dan, if government, if uh, if this economy is going to get back on its feet, let's remind ourselves what the hell the economy is. It's not government spending. Right. It's voluntary, mutually beneficial transactions between. Hundreds of millions of people. So let the you know the Dysons and the Elon Musks and the the uh, 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 who's the one from Twitter now is donating a billion dollars. Let these entrepreneurs get the economy rolling. The more government spends, the more hurt it's going to do. Right. I mean, uh, if you don't produce things and provide services, you don't have an economy. I mean, there's just no way around it. Yeah, I, I, I it's just remarkable to me uh, some of the proposals and some of the thinking how economically illiterate so many people in positions of authority are. But I know that comes as no surprise to you. And the history, the history is not on their side, Dan. You know, the 2008 uh, stimulus resulted in, as you talked about for a decade, the slowest period of economic growth in U.S. modern history, and even going across the pond, you know, the Japanese, after their boom and bust, have been stimulating their economy for 30 years. All they've racked up is, well, zillions of yen in debt, and then we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars in new American debt. And uh, uh, Rashid Tlaib thinks he might be able to just, you know, print the dollars and it has no effect, but this could really doom our economy long-term, much more than the virus. No, no, it's do. it's coins, not dollars. So coins is different oh, than right. dollars. So the that. coins, yeah, that's a whole different dynamic. It must uh, be very shiny to be worth two trillion, to be worth a trillion dollars. It must be. I can't wait to see the design. He is Jonathan Honig. He's the capitalist pig. He's also the author of a new textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Be well. The more you listen, the more you'll know.
This, this, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, PPP program was the topic of conversation at uh, last evening's task force briefing. Uh, $40 billion uh, reportedly has already been processed out uh, nationally. $40 billion of the some $350 billion that are part of the forgivable loan program for businesses with fewer than 500 employees, according to President Trump. But there were some... Uh, pushback uh, about uh, the prioritization of loan processing that Bank of America was doing initially and Wells Fargo complaining about this or that and different interfaces at different banks. But the bottom line is the thing launched on Friday. Uh, we're standing here on Tuesday. And as of yesterday, you had uh, 40 billion that was moving out the door. So that's a decent start. But for more on the details of what small businesses should know, and how they can access the PPP if they've got questions or concerns about it. Please be joined by Stephen Leahy, who's a Chicago attorney and host of the Trust Radio Network, as well as the IRS Radio Hour. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you today. So, you know, I mean, why don't you, you amplify some of the conversations you're having on your show otherwise, the questions that uh, business people are asking about this P-cubed program and how they access these forgivable loans. As you mentioned, they a lot of it has gone out the door, but it has been kind of priority about who gets the money. So far, the larger banks have kind of given the uh, edge to their larger uh, obviously, it can't be the largest because these are 500 employees or less, but they are prioritizing who gets the loans. So, for instance, if you don't have a commercial loan with some of these banks, they won't give you this loan. And so you go to your bank, you think, oh, you're just going to fill out this form and they're going to give me this loan. It doesn't generally work that way. <laughs> you know, leave it to the government. They have a problem finding a way to give away free money, right? Well, right. <laughs> they're having a problem with it. <laughs> so so, so these, these uh, community banks have to, have to opt in in terms of uh, deciding to offer these loans. Exactly, and there are there are independent loans out there. So I'm working with some lenders who are who are providing money to smaller, you know, people, the independent contractors, and the and the self-employed. That comes April 10th. They get to apply for this loan too. So up until now, they haven't been able to apply. And sometimes they've made the independent contractors also available for unemployment. So you have to kind of weigh before whether you should go to unemployment or try to get one of these loans. This is not going to be the answer for everybody. It's going to help. Going back to February, the eight weeks, going back to February 15th and projecting out to June 30th, right? Exactly, yeah. And and, and the, the splits on employees uh, versus uh, overhead rent and utilities is 75-25 employees? Well, you know, I think it's going to work out that way, but it, I don't think there is – in the law itself, there is no – there is no priority, but it's going to work out that way because you you got to use it for most of the money is going to go to your payroll. Right, but I but I just want to make sure because this has sort of been a handle that people are using. But this this is not a requirement. This is not something where you're going to have to keep track and the government's going to check the distribution in, in order to forgive the loan. Well, you know, I think it's more the banks that are that are putting up these right. uh, restrictions on. They're they're more concerned about it. Actually, the you, the loan application is pretty simple. You're supposed to do. You know, just you're supposed to attest to things, certify. Yes, this is what I'm going to use the money for. But what a lot of the banks are doing is they're requiring you to to do what they usually do in banks, and and that's go to an underwriter and provide all this information. And so while the the loan doesn't require, I mean the the law doesn't require that you do this, the banks are requiring it. 
just to cover themselves because I think in the end they they know down the road they don't know what the government's going to do and so they're trying to protect themselves. Also talk to us about uh, the pushing out the uh, uh, tax filing dates to July 15th and the implications of that just walk us through what the average taxpayer should know about uh, postponing the uh, filing date. So I I got a lot of calls in that uh, people had have uh, scheduled their payment for April 15th because that's when it was due. If you have scheduled it, you got to go back and reschedule it till July 15th. So I wouldn't pay on April 15th. Try to keep as much cash as you can because we don't know what's going to happen. So schedule that payment forward to July 15th. So you go online to irs.gov and you can change that date. If you haven't scheduled it and you're going to pay it, then don't pay it until July 15th because that's the new de- deadline. And also filing is changed till July 15th. I want to go back to uh, one other um, loan that uh, was uh, expanded under the CARES Act, as I understand it, and that's the uh, the EIDL loans, these uh, economic injury disaster mm-hmm. loans. Uh, to, to talk to us about the expansion within the CARES Act about uh, for this program. Again, this is another loan program, and that's why uh, uh, this is just the beginning. The the PPP is just the beginning, and then you can you can apply for this economic disaster loan. So there's going to be steps here. Uh, again, first the PPP, then the economic disaster. Then you're going to have to prove some of the PPP uh, to get it uh, forgiven. And, and you're going to have to jump through all the hoops of the SBA to get the disaster loans. They're trying to make it easier. But again, as I mentioned, a lot of the, the um, lenders are still going to require you to, to follow all these rules that are out there. But, but this, the, the EIDL loan, the, the Economic Injury Disaster Loans, SBA, low interest loans, accessing the PPP loan does not preclude you from also accessing the EIDL loan. Exactly, it does not. Okay. Now, if you have one before, if you have one before, because a lot of people went out and they they applied for that first, so you have to reveal that on your on your application uh, for the PPP. You have to reveal that that you've asked for this loan, and but you can still go ahead and st- and get the economic disaster loan also uh, after the fact. So again, these are steps that you need to take. Well, and and just importantly on the EIDL for people who are not familiar with it, it so one of the aspects of that, I mean, you know, if you're facing a cash crunch because we're talking about so many businesses that, you know, cash flow 30 days maybe uh, exactly. is, is an emergency cash advance that you do not have to repay even if the business is subsequently denied the loan. You talk about the $10,000 that's yes, out there for exactly. some. It's up, it's up to $10,000. And I, you know, even my business, we have, we've applied for that. I got a confirmation, but I haven't heard anything that's two weeks ago. So we'll see how that works. It's, uh, there's all I would say there's there's a way things are supposed to work and then there's the way they actually do work and we're finding out how it actually works now and it's not what it's supposed to be but again that's what you go through this process it's a it's a uh, as you uh, we see that there's so many people out there there were so many people online first that doesn't mean it's out there you said 40 billion as you mentioned there's 349 billion dollars out there so there's still people there's still money out there there's still time for you to get out there and and put your loan out and put your application in you mentioned independent contractors what about uh, the, the the solo artist who uh, has an S corp or a sole proprietorship. They're not, now they're an S corp. They don't have to wait, right? Because that's not an independent contractor. Generally, an independent contractor is going to be someone like a realtor, or somebody like that who gets their money from one employer, but they don't get a W two form. They get a ten ninety nine. So they're an independent contractor. And again, you have to kind of wait. Does it make sense? I had a guy yesterday didn't make enough money to get a PPP loan, but still could go to 
get an unemployment because now they're they're allowing independent contractors to get unemployment, and that that never happened before. You couldn't do that as an independent contractor. But if you're a S corp and you have say just yourself on the payroll and you use independent contractors, are you still eligible to get a loan for your portion of the payroll and any overhead? And then the independent contractors could subsequently do the same. Well, actually, if you you can get the loan for the independent contractors and then pay your independent contractors. Okay. So they don't have to go out and get it. So if I'm an S corporation, that they're using my independent contractors as part of my payroll. So it doesn't have to be just the 940, 941 people. If I can show that I've been paying independent contractors, I can get the money, the loan to pay them, and then I can pay them. So they don't have to go out and get their own loan. Interesting. Interesting. Stephen Lay, he's your Chicago attorney. He's host of the Trust Radio Network. That's Saturdays at 8 p.m. on AM 560 in Chicago. IRS Radio, our Sundays at 5 p.m. also on AM 560. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Go to federalcoronaloans.com, and you can find all the information I've given you here is there. All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. 6.6 million filers for unemployment this week. Another 6.6 million. So that's 17 million in three weeks. Lives versus lives. An economy versus not an economy. The prospect of a higher standard of living versus the prospect of a lower standard of living. You cannot bail yourself out of these choices through redistribution of other people's money or printing money. That's a fact. That's something we actually do know. Those are the conversations that should be happening, at least in part, when the public health experts aren't speaking, but the policymakers and the decision makers are at those task force briefings and generally speaking. It's adult time. While the press is so focused on what did Trump know and when did he know it? What did Tony Fauci know and when did he know it? And by the way, uh, this is uh, not a criticism of Tony Fauci, who I think has generally been humble and restrained and talks about what he knows and is honest about what he doesn't know. That's the more interesting question to me. That's what we should be talking about as well on the public health side, it seems to me, which is what did no one know if you want to go back and play that game? And then just end that game and then focus on what do we still not know that we need to to make decisions prospectively. Just to underscore my point, on January 23rd, AMA podcast, Fauci downplayed the virus's potential impact on the U.S., noting all five cases were travelers from China. Asked whether the U.S. might contemplate citywide shutdowns like those China was enacting at the time. There's no chance in the world we could do that to Chicago or New York or San Francisco, but they're doing it. So let's see what happens. A day later, the former head of the WHO's response to SARS, Dr. David Hyman, said the coronavirus looks like it doesn't transmit through the air very easily and probably transmits through close contact. CDC press release January 24th. The immediate risk of this new virus to the American public is believed to be low. And again, the administration, January 31st. Fauci, we still have a low risk to the American public, echoed by HHS Secretary Azar. I want to stress the risk of infection for Americans remains low. Well, to some extent, they're not wrong as this is playing out. You have 432,000 cases. That's 
barely more than one tenth of one percent of the American population. And obviously, I understand the social distancing and the other evasive actions that were taken. Guidelines recommended has a material impact on that number. And when Fauci said earlier in the month of January that this is not as uh, dangerous as the seasonal flu in terms of lethality, uh, he may end up being right. And again, it's based on what we knew at the time and then the measures that were taken since that time. I mean, the most frustrating one of the most frustrating things about this is the unwillingness of policy leaders to confront adult questions. And the other is the cheap shotting. I think Tony Fauci is a honest actor in all of this, but so are a lot of the politicians who are otherwise subjected to obscene questions when they're by the D.C. press corps when they're not asking about pardoning the Tiger King, for goodness sakes. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Ann Shukit. She is the principal deputy director of the CDC. Dr. Shukit, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. When it comes to where we're at now, what we know and what we don't know and what we need to know before we can make informed decisions about reopening. One of the things that uh, both doctors Burks and Fauci have mentioned is this uh, antibody testing 25, you know, the CDC guesstimates and Fauci is again, uh, we have no idea if I had to guess 25 to 50% of the population is asymptomatic. How can we get an answer to what we don't know there? Because that seems to be something that's emphasized by medical professionals as something we need to know to have confidence in a phased in reopening. Let me describe three key things that need to be in place for reopening of different components of communities. The first is the health care system. We need to have enough intensive care unit beds, enough ventilators, and enough health care workers to be able to treat an increase in cases. If we reopen and things get worse, we need to have the hospitals ready for that. A second thing is the public health capacity. We need to make sure that your local or state health department can keep up with the cases that do occur and be able to quickly isolate them, trace their contacts, and keep their contacts from spreading to others. Thirdly, we need to make sure that things are truly getting better, that the uh, epidemiologic indicators are looking better and better, declines in new cases, declines in deaths and so forth in the context of good availability of testing. That said, we want to get our critical workers back. We want to get people back. We want the economy to um, recover, but we don't want to open so quickly that things get very rapidly worse and we have a much bigger next wave. The antibody test is a component, but it is not the whole answer. I don't think that most Americans are immune to this virus yet. I do think that the social distancing has been phenomenally effective at slowing the increase. When we come back, I want to pick up on what you just mentioned, resources and the road to reopening. We'll be right back with Dr. Ann Shuket, Principal Deputy Director of the CDC. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. Ann Shuket. She is the principal deputy director of the CDC. And I want to go back to the point you made on the healthcare system and the ability to handle a potential increase in demand, increase in uh, patients. And I get that. But if you're trying to game plan, 
resources and will you have the resources to meet the potential need? It seems to me there's a cart before the horse. Don't you want to have a better idea of what the vulnerable population is, the population that's not immune is, so that you can model the resources you'll need prospectively? Yes, we do know vulnerability right now that the older you are, the more vulnerable you are. People with underlying diseases like diabetes and heart disease are more vulnerable than others. But even healthy young people can get quite sick from this, and everybody can spread it. Based on the latest information we have, we don't think the majority of Americans are immune to this. It may be that more healthcare workers have already been exposed, and that's a real priority for us to understand. We're developing, and many, many groups are working on antibody assays and trying to understand how they will predict and what they can tell us. But I think that the um, even the best information we have today suggests that most people haven't yet been exposed to this virus and are not yet immune. So we, of course, would love to have a vaccine. We'd love to have treatments, and hopefully we'll get treatments in the next few months. But we can't count on um, every single person having an antibody test and that being a solution. One thing to say about other coronaviruses is that the antibodies may not be long-lasting. So even if we knew that you had antibodies, we don't know that you're going to be protected a few months from now. Right. There was a story out yesterday about uh, 51 individuals in South Korea who were uh, had the virus were cleared, get testing positive again, to your point. So that that is a legitimate concern, no question. But going back to the entire population, two things. One is you could do representative testing that you could model based off. Absolutely. And that's what we're doing right now. Absolutely. We've got collaborations with Washington State and New York State. We're getting the samples and running them, trying to understand in those places that were hit earlier than other places, what is the level of immunity? A number of states are are developing that ability as well. And I think you point to a very good issue that we can learn a lot right now about what's already happened in our community. The early results we have are still small, so I can't make generalizations, but that's a big priority. We're scaling up to be able to do many, many thousands a day, and there's labs in Washington State, New York State, setting up the same way. We have some uh, work to develop uh, partnerships with commercial labs to be able to do high-throughput antibody testing. So I think you're pointing at a good area of need for emerging data that isn't going to answer the question about what happens next week or the week after, but it'll give us very good information for, for planning over the next several months. I want to go back to some of the projections that continue to be revised down. Um, the IHME study in particular of projected deaths, as Dr. Burks addressed last night, and now uh, in the neighborhood of 60,000 down from 102 to 240,000, which is down from other studies in the hundreds of thousands or millions. In addition to how off the IHME study was in terms of the incidence of hospitalizations. So thinking about resources again. Now I understand what Dr. Burke is saying. I mean, part of the reason it's down and everybody's happy about that is because of the evasive actions that have been taken and because of Americans compliance with the guidelines and with shelter in place orders and all that. I get that. But are we in a bit of a trick bag here where we say we have to continue to do this because we're saving lives and it has the potential and maybe there are early indications that it's starting to bend the curve in the direction we want it bent. But then we can't reopen our economy. We can't get people back to work because there's a prospect that it could spike and then we're going to be right back in the same place. And we're not exactly sure what kind of resources we would need to make sure we can accommodate a spike. And so it it seems to me we're we're sort of like being pulled in multiple directions at the same time. 
the models don't tell us everything that we want to know. We've learned a lot about the virus. It's easily spread. It can be severe. It can, um, uh, the doubling time in the community can be, you know, two days or so. You can really ramp up in an exponential increase. But we don't know exactly what's going to happen with or without intervention in any given community in the U.S., let alone around the world. We have to take this seriously. We need to use the models to help us understand which interventions are the most impactful and what kind of resources we have to build towards. Because as everyone in America has seen, you can't get um, masks, you can't get ventilators overnight. It takes time to produce them. So I agree with you that the prediction aspect of models is extremely frustrating. We try to use them for direction and for impact of different interventions rather than for numbers. The earliest models on this scenario that we're seeing had millions of deaths in America right. with no intervention at all. So we were very concerned right from the beginning in January at the CDC because what was happening in China that we could see, let alone what we couldn't see, was very concerning. What about this? I mean, this is sort of a layman's uh, suge- suggestion that I'm, you've, this is being bandied about. I'm sure you've heard it. But the idea that the reopening, when it occurs, community by community, not state by state necessarily, you see other countries moving to reopen their societies, Austria, Germany, Norway, Denmark, uh, in addition to what Sweden has been doing generally, and uh, guidelines in place for the reopening like masks and social distancing and, and other such things that we're doing as well. But the idea that uh, you do a gradual reopening community by community and you also sort of continue to have a shelter in place guideline, if not order at the state and local level for vulnerable populations, meaning older people mm-hmm. or people with underlying conditions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have to say that when we were first following this virus, we thought we could do what was needed by um, the shelter in place for the vulnerable. You know, the strategy that Singapore used was to protect the vulnerable. They didn't have to shut things down. Right. But they didn't um, lose uh, control of the contact tracing and uh, cluster detection. They didn't get the widespread community problem that we have. We probably had so many importations from Europe that we just couldn't keep up with it in terms of the month of February and March. I think that issue of really protecting the vulnerable is a critical one. And so that's a component of how we might reopen. Um, We know, though, that we were seeing that exponential growth until we got, you know, millennials to stay home as well. As you say, there may be that as we get more information about how much infection there's already been in some of the younger populations, the issue is to protect the older populations we had to keep the younger populations from spreading. She is Dr. Ann Shukit. She is the principal deputy director of the CDC. Dr. Shukit, thanks so much for joining us. Very helpful. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, you know what I was talking about earlier this hour with Jonathan Honig, the capitalist pig, the big socialist spice girl plan of uh, 
$2,000 debit cards for everybody in America right now, $1,000 a month for the next year or for a year after the COVID crisis ends. And uh, that includes people in this country illegally. And you just pay for it by uh, printing up a couple a couple of coins, a couple of $1 trillion coins. This is Rashida Tlaib's proposal. Uh, who would adorn the coin? Tooth fairy, maybe? I don't know. Uh, that's already been done in Chicago. Not the printing of the money. Yeah, that's where they need the socialist Spice Girls, the local and state politicians. But Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, triple threat, has issued an executive order, has already issued an executive order, availing everyone in the city uh, to any disaster relief funding that the city should receive. Uh, the uh, uh, That would include people in this country illegally who reside in the city of Chicago. And don't forget, the city of Chicago is a sanctuary city. The state of Illinois is a sanctuary state. Uh, one estimate is about uh, 280,000 persons in this country illegally uh, were living and working in Illinois in uh, 2018. So now think about that writ large over the hundreds of sanctuary jurisdictions around the country with what uh, Rashida Tlaib wants to do and with what state and local politicians in certain jurisdictions are doing per the constituents they're interested in serving. Think about that when you hear Nancy Pelosi arguing for $150 billion more in state and local relief. And, you know, they want this block granted so that state and local authorities have the flexibility to distribute the funds how they see fit. That's generally speaking the right approach, except when it comes to people that are distributing other people's money to people who have no legal standing to be in this country and are otherwise not entitled to any of the relief that was provided in the two point two trillion dollar CARES Act. Becomes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Here's another problem. While uh, this happened in Chicago uh, this week, on Tuesday, 20, you know, it was a nice day in Chicago, 21 people shot, seven murdered in a single day on Tuesday. And this was Lori Lightfoot's response. To be blunt, if our ICU are filled with gunshot victims, our ability to respond to this COVID-19 crisis will necessarily be compromised. That's a, a curious response. Is, <laughs> is that like these other mayors who said to, to, to people with violent tendencies, please don't commit violent crimes right now. We need the hospital space. Boy, those uh, people, those shooters and their murderers, they're in for real tongue lashing from Lori Lightfoot, even if they uh, committed their violent acts with the social distancing protocols in place. She is an example of the cultural Marxist politician you see all over this country, and they're all coming to the federal government with their hands out for their cities or to the extent they're also governors, states. This is exactly what is tackled, at least in part, in No Safe Spaces. NoSafeSpaces.com is where you can see the number one political documentary of 2019. Hollywood doesn't want you to see this movie. It's not on the streaming services, but it is available for a limited time at NoSafeSpaces.com. So check it out while you've got this downtime. No Safe Spaces. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is 
the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump mentioned this Michigan state representative yesterday at his briefing. State Representative Karen Whitsett, who tested positive for COVID-19. She's a Democrat state representative from Detroit. She started taking uh, hydroxychloroquine on March 31, prescribed by her doctor after both she and her husband saw treatment for a range of symptoms. It was less than two hours, she said, before she started to feel relief. Uh, She said she was familiar with the quote-unquote wonders of HCQ from an earlier bout with Lyme disease. Does not believe she would have thought to ask for it or her doctor would have prescribed it had not President Trump been touting it as a possible treatment. It has a lot to do with the president bringing it up, Whitsett said. He's the only person who has the power to make it a priority. Uh, Interesting Uh, anecdote, uh, but it's interesting nonetheless. Tony Fauci was asked, Dr. Tony Fauci was asked about uh, HCQ again at yesterday's briefing, and he had this to say. So we have two things that are simultaneously going on. We're having actual formal clinical trials and the off-label use. So is there any problem with doing it, uh, uh, doing both rather than doing either or? In other words, uh, the off-label use uh, prescribed by a doctor, as in the case of this dis- uh, Detroit State Rep, to see if it uh, might be helpful with a particular patient's profile, and then also doing the clinical trials to get the scientifically st- uh, scientifically significant information you need to make a more general statement about its applicability as a therapeutic. For more on that question, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. William Hoselton. He is the president of Access Health International, as well as chairman of the uh, Hoselton Foundation for Science and the Arts. He's a former professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health, and he is well known for his pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS, and genomics. His most recent book, Voices in Dementia Care, Reimagining the Culture of Care. Dr. Hoselton, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So um, you were on uh, Fox News Channel with uh, Dana Perino the other day, and you were uh, pretty pessimistic about HCQ and uh, sort of wanting to wanted to tamp down the enthusiasm for HCQ as a possible uh, therapeutic writ large. Um, but is there any issue with uh, what Dr. Fauci said, the idea that we're uh, it's OK for off label use per the FDA, but we're also doing clinical trials. It doesn't need to be an either or. I have enormous respect for Dr. Fauci, and I think it's important to listen to the nuances of what he actually said. Um, he has stressed the importance of clinical trials, which are important. If you don't know, you've got to do a clinical trial to know. And the first thing you would say is we don't know whether that drug works at all for uh, COVID. Uh, There are reports uh, from small trials in China that it works a little bit, and there's some reports that it doesn't work at all. And in fact, some patients do a little bit worse. But the real issue with off-label use is possible uh, effects that aren't intended. Uh, I just got a note from uh, somebody whose wife used the the drug off-label and died. And she died of a heart attack. A heart attack is a consequence of unintended unintended consequence of the use of that drug for people who are at risk. It is known to cause heart attacks. And the more number of people who take it, the larger of death 
that will be result from taking hydroxychloroquine. It is not a drug you should take without your doctor's recommendation and without specific knowledge of your underlying health conditions and the other drugs that you take. It is not a passive, it's not a harmless drug in any sense. Well, okay, so I, but I'm, I'm a little confused because on the one hand you say, I mean, and, and I understand, you know, waving the flag that this is a powerful drug, this is not to be uh, taken lightly, considered lightly, but you, you uh, just said previous to that, that look, you don't take it without a doctor's advice and counsel and consent and agreement. So and it seems to me that that's sort of what's happening right now. Uh, I, I spoke with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, who's an epidemiologist and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital yesterday. And he, he uh, had a piece in City Journal, uh, The Necessary Waiting Game, making the exact same point you're making about clinical trials. But he also said that the, the off-label use is for um, when clinical trials aren't available, participation isn't feasible. And so, again, with your doctor's consent, with your saying that this makes sense, your patient profile, here are the possible risks, here are the possible side effects. But on balance, it's worth the risk based on your condition. Why is that not okay? What's worth the risk? Taking something you know is going to have very little effect. We, I tell you what we already know about hydroxychloroquine. It's going to have very little effect, if any effect. Because when you do studies, and you get some studies that say it has a little effect, and some say it has no effect, the net result of that is you already know the answer. I want you to ask another question. A lot of people are being given hydroxychloroquine in the hospitals today. A lot of people are dying today. If that drug were working, do you think so many people would be dying? Well, look, I, I'm not saying it's a panacea. I'm not, and I'm, first of all, I'm not in a position to make that determination. I'm not a medical professional or doctor, but I'm not saying it's a panacea. I'm just going based on, look, these interesting anecdotes. And I know the plural of anecdote is not data. And I'm all for the clinical trials. That's right. I, I just I just I just don't understand why you 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 have to make it an either or particular. And, and again, there are medical professionals who do well, have this knowledge. Is, if do you, the, the reason that you'd be more cautious if you don't know is you do know that it can have negative and even lethal consequences. And the more people that take it, the more those lethal consequences of both drugs, azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine, will appear. So if you don't know it's going to work, why do it? And if you know at best, you give even the slightest chance, why do it? This is, let me say that if, if you look back at the experience in other epidemics, uh, I remember in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, there was a drug called Suramin, very, very similar to this. It had approved for some uses in tropical diseases. The French used it to treat uh, HIV AIDS. They thought it might work, drug very much like this. You may remember what happened to Rock Hudson who used that drug. Yeah. All right. That is the kind of thing that you worry about. Was that the proximate cause That's of his death? Worse. And why people are pushing it as hard as they are is a mystery to me. What was, was, you have to ask yourself, if you don't think a drug is going to work, why push it? What was and if the, it has lethal consequences, why push it? Wait, wait, wait. The, the Rock Hudson case, was the, the drug you're referring to, that was the proximate cause of his death? It is, it, it was known to have toxic side effects. He had HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. He went to, we went to France to be treated. 
it, that drug is known to have toxic side effects. And it may well have, we don't know that it's what caused his demise, but it well could have. Uh, and there were other trials. There was a Chinese herbal medicine that definitely killed a lot of people called Compound Q. That was tried off-label. And it definitely killed a number of people earlier than they uh, needed to die. Um, so this isn't the first time in almost every epidemic before there is a proven drug to treat it. People will try many, many things. It's not new. It's normal behavior. It's so totally understandable. What isn't understandable is why a powerful political leader would undertake to advertise an unproven remedy. The last time I saw this happen was Thabo Mbeki in South Africa, who promoted an herbal remedy for HIV AIDS. And the net result is we believe, and there's good evidence, that over 300,000 people died as a result of that decision. Right. I think I it's think not that, a wise thing to do. Well, I, I think there's there's sort of this and 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 I don't think Trump alone shares this, um, but it's this idea that there's a right to try. I mean, it's sort of the what have you got to lose? And I know you're answering that in part, but I mean, I'm, answer, I'm answering your question. It's this right to try attitude that Americans have. Well, it's yeah, it's your life is what you have to lose. And so nobody's taking nobody's saying you don't have a right to try. People can risk their own life. But why a political leader? Should, pro should promote an unproven and possibly dangerous remedy is the question you should be asking. We have 4,000 people, so 4,000 odd people in clinical trials right now with HCQ2, so we should have an answer in the foreseeable future to this question, right? We should. Okay. He is Dr. William Hoselton, Chair and President of Access Health International, as well as Chairman of the Hoselton Foundation for Science and the Arts, former professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health, well-known for his pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS, and genomics. His most recent book, Voices in Dementia Care, Reimagining the Culture of Care. Dr. Hoselton, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, following up on our conversation with Dr. Hoselton about uh, HCQ, take a bit of a tangent, but a relevant one. This New York Times story about uh, Trump potentially personally benefiting from his quote unquote aggressive advocacy of HCQ because he owns stock in one of the companies that manufacture the drug. Uh, you may have caught it at the end of uh, his Q&A Wednesday night's task force briefing. Someone yelled out about this, you know, do you own stock? Do you personally benefit the idea that this is uh, the motivation for President Trump? David Harsani does a nice job debunking the New York Times shameful reporting, ridiculous reporting uh, in great detail. Three fa Trump has three family trusts. Each have investments in a mutual fund, Dodge and Cox mutual fund. The largest holding was in Sanofi, which is a French drug maker that produces the hydroxychloroquine label Plaquenil. The drug isn't patent. It's not particularly difficult to manufacture. And there are a bunch of giant pharma companies around the world already ramping up production of generic versions, writes Har uh, Harsani. Uh, so Sanofi is less likely to benefit than Novartis or Bayer. And by the way, you've already got a stockpile of 30 million 
doses, right, as President Trump has announced, to the extent that this proves to be an effective antiviral. And this is not Trump prescribed. It's doctor prescribed, as uh, Fauci said at the task force, we're having the clinical trials ongoing, 4,000 some odd clinical uh, individuals in clinical trials. And then we're also providing per FDA approval for off label use by doctors. But that's a doctor patient decision, not a Trump decision, which makes this reporting all the more ridiculous. Uh, but but here's the thing. As far as we know, Trump probably owns and remember, these are blind trusts. Trump probably owns less than one hundred dollars of Sanofi stock in one of his mutual funds. I mean, his position is negligible and he's not in control of his position because it's in a blind trust. And, and and even if all those things weren't true, it's de minimis and irrelevant to the larger discussion, as well as what's actually happening on the ground, the combination of uh, uh, securing a stockpile as well as the application of the potential therapy. Uh, Harsani writes, so cunning is Trump's scheme to spike his $1,000 mutual fund position that he called India, India's prime minister, Narendra Modi, this week and convinced him to lift a ban and start exporting even more of the generic HCQ to the United States. As Harsani writes, what's actually at play here is the left simply can't accept that a Republican acts in good faith. If they're not hiding some devious self-serving motivation, they're under the thumb of a foreign power or a shadowy industry. If it's not big oil leading George Bush into Iraq, it's Mitt Romney trying to hand the country over to his buddies at Bain Capital. And now President Trump is selling out the country because of some position he probably doesn't even know he has as a a result of holding some mutual fund in some family trust. It is so beyond absurd that, um, you know, you would only expect it to find it in The New York Times. Oh, and by the way, they're not the only ones. I mean, the hits just keep on coming from the D.C. press corps. ABC News, and this was uh, also queried after at uh, Wednesday evening's task force meeting. ABC News, uh, this uh, uh, November memo, as far back as late November, U.S. intelligence officials were warning that a contagion was seeping through China's Wuhan region, changing the patterns of life and business, so on and so forth. Uh, According to a November intelligence report, by a mili- by the military's National Center for Medical Intelligence, two sources familiar with the document's contents. That was an ABC News report. The uh, director of the National Center for Medical Intelligence at DAI, uh, DIA, excuse me, Defense Intelligence Agency, issued a statement. As a matter of practice, the National Center for Medical Intelligence does not comment publicly on specific intelligence matters. However, in the interest of transparency during this current public health crisis, we can confirm that media reporting about the existence slash release of a National Center for Medical Intelligence coronavirus related product slash assessment in November of 2019 is not correct. No such National Center for Medical Intelligence product exists. So either uh, the director of the National Center for Medical Intelligence is just um, lying outright or ABC is needs to get better sources or ABC is lying outright. Who knows between the stories they spike and the stories they report. But that's not even the coup de grace. I mean, I get it is in a sense it is in a serious sense. 
in a less serious sense, even less serious than the New York Post columnist who or a reporter who reporter quotation marks who asked Trump about pardoning Joe Exotic, the Tiger King. At a task force briefing about a pandemic, almost 50,000 American lives, 430,000 cases. And you're asking about uh, pardoning the Tiger King who even less serious than that are these two asshats on CNN. One is actually employed by CNN. The other one might as well be as a side hustle. Chris Cuomo, Fredo, as you know him, from home, interviewing his governor brother, Andrew. You know this uh, terrible Marx Brothers routine they do? And I mean Marx Brothers in the sense of Groucho and Zeppo as well as in the sense of Carl and maybe an honorary brother, Engels. Uh, Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo did this last week, this routine. Let me ask you something. Uh, with all of this adulation that you're getting for doing your job, are you thinking about running for president? Tell the audience. No, no. No, you won't answer? No, I answered. The answer is no. No, you're not question. thinking about Sometimes it? Sometimes it's one word. I said no. <sighs> Have no. you thought about it? No. Are you open to thinking about it? No. Might you think about it at some point? No. How can you know what you might think about at some point right now? Because I know what I might think about and what I won't think about. But you're a great interviewer, by the way. Appreciate it. Learn from the best. One deserves a noogie and the other deserves a wedgie uh, and they won't stop. This is now the occasion of uh, Bolshevik Bernie getting on the race, provided the opportunity for these two knuckleheads to do their slapstick routine again. The uh, Bernie Sanders is out. <laughs> the word is that this increases the chances with Senator Sanders out that you may get it in the in the race for president. Is that true? Is that the word? Well, then it must be true. That's the word, the word on the street. Right. Is that oh, oh the word? That on the yes, street? I'm sorry. Right, I didn't hear true. an answer. Was it responsive? You're not responsive. I'm just saying, if that's the word, who am I to argue with the word? Right. So uh, then you, yeah. the senator that's leaving you, the race what? has changed your thinking. Is that what you're saying, Governor? The, has the senators leaving the race uh, changed just, uh, my uh, thinking? In what uh, way? Uh, Are you now giving different consideration to running for president? No. And it just goes on like that. It just goes on like that. It just goes on like that with all of these outlets and all of these intellectual lightweights, news readers, uh, leftist cranks that you're relying on to tell you about life and death matters like a pandemic. We should listen to what they have to say about who our political leadership should be. And what it and what it should be doing, what they should be doing, our political leaders. And that's one of them right there, the governor of New York State. Consider that. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we're told uh, we need to flatten the curve, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. This is uh, the mantra. We need to spread out the incidence of infection so as to not overwhelm healthcare systems, right? We've made this point on this show. This is not about necessarily 
reducing the overall number of affections that will incur that will occur, uh, but rather at least spreading them out so you don't have systems around the country in the same position that New York City, for example, has been in for the last couple of weeks. But what if we modeled, in addition to some of the models that have been wildly wrong on projections of hospitalizations and projections of morbidity rates, what if the models are wrong with respect to the curve? What if the start date for coronavirus in the United States is significantly later than actually happened, then it would alter our position on the so-called curve, wouldn't it? For more on this, uh, per a uh, interesting piece that she and a uh, contributor, Thomas Seeger, who's a PhD, wrote at Uncover, uh, uh, wrote and has posted at UncoverDC.com. We're pleased to be joined by AJK a freelance writer and researcher. AJ, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So um, you uh, start by questioning um, a model that uh, not too many people I've uh, heard have questioned, which is we've got the curve wrong or where we're at in the curve because we've got the start date wrong. Right. Um, The imperial model, which if... um your listeners don't know, was the primary model that influenced the lockdown policy decisions. Um, It was the model that made um, bureaucracies take note and say, oh, my gosh, um, this thing is awful. We have to shut everything down to prevent transmission. Um, In looking at the assumptions made in that model, they're predicated on a seed date of early January, and seed date means when it was brought to the U.S. Um, The Washington State cases. Correct. Right. So um, they predicated this model based on those being the very first cases in the United States, despite the fact that China had already traced this thing back to mid-November. And it's a highly transmissible, often asymptomatic um, silent spreader, so to speak. There's a ton of international travel between China and the U.S. So um, it is really um, difficult to imagine that we would be detecting the very first cases in January. Right. And and the New York Times reported this week some 440,000 uh, Chinese nationals traveling mainly to big cities, as you would anticipate, New York, Chicago, L.A., uh, in uh, the relevant months, December and January of uh, December of last year, January of this year. But 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 so uh, walk us through, though. So if 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 it happened, if if the first cases were actually say, in December or even further back, back in November or even October, then how does that change what we should understand about how the virus is spread? Well, if anybody's heard the the sort of um, analogy with a a kid's allowance, if you double it every couple days, you know, starting with a dollar, uh, the child is going to (laughs) have, I don't know the exact number, but hundreds of thousands of dollars at the end of the month. Compounding, yes. Right. It's exactly. um, It's exponential growth. So if you consider um, pushing back this seed date, even, you know, even even 30 days uh, back to the beginning of December and then go further back 60 days uh, back to the beginning of November. And that's predicated on the assumption that we can trust the information coming out of China. Mm -hmm. Um, You can see how widely this could have spread prior to us even being aware of it. Well, and and, uh, the indication that maybe this had uh, these cases had occurred, as you say, going back two months 
and that it was spreading is uh, not to be found in uh, identified COVID-19 infections that have not been reported, but rather in uh, unexplained incidences of influenza in uh, the first part of this year, as you go into some detail and describing. And when we come back, uh, let, let's start there, because you know what, the evidence that uh, we're at a different place on the curve than what the experts are telling us, so, well, you need some evidence to back up the idea that this was spreading before people knew it was spreading in late January. So let's uh, pour over that evidence with AJK when we come back. Dan Show. We're talking to AJK. She's a freelance writer and researcher and has a piece at UncoverDC.com. UncoverDC.com. The curve is already flat. And AJ, where we left off, is talking about uh, perhaps as uh, far back as 60 days as when COVID-19 actually landed in the United States as compared to the, the late January date with the West Washington State cases. And uh, the evidence to support that claim per your piece is unexplained influenza infections, or what were categorized as influenza infections. Right. So the CDC does surveillance on something um, they call influenza-like illness. So um, it does include people who have tested positive for the flu, but it also includes sort of nonspecific viral respiratory infections, things that show up symptomatically as the flu. And that um, even though a lot of people are really averse to this idea of saying it's not, you know, or, or say it's not the flu, it's not the flu. They're averse to the idea of comparing it to the flu, um, especially in its mild and moderate form. Um, it looks a lot like the flu. Um, and they've shown that mild and moderate cases are the predominant cases. So um, when this wasn't adding up to me and I was looking for information that might uh, lead us to some answers, um, it occurred to me that, you know, the CDC flu data is updated pretty regularly, um, especially um, in terms of statistics. Statistics sometimes take years to put out. The flu data comes out every couple weeks. Um, so I went to look at these ILI cases. Um, ILI, sure enough, in- influenza-like illness. ILI. Influenza-like illness, right. correct. Um, so I went to look at the stats on um, these influenza-like illness cases. And sure enough, beginning in late November continuing through March, um, over when compared to the last, honestly, 10 years, I only graphed the past three, um, they, there was a massive bullet unaccounted for in that time frame of cases that um, qualified as influenza-like illness but did not test positive for the flu. Well, it's interesting, too. I'm looking at the graph that you referenced in your piece, and uh, you, you, the, you 
can definitely see the uh, the spike and the increase. And this is over 2018, which was a particularly bad year for the flu. We had 80,000 people die of influenza in 2018, which was almost double the four year average. Um, so it was right. a significant increase. And now in 2019, and you, you're noting at the end of the year, by December 19, there were over 80,000 U.S. patients seeking treatment for flu-like symptoms. Um, and, and so that's a significant increase over 2018. So it is, it's concerning in, in some way, either the flu is becoming, uh, despite uh, mm-hmm. a vaccine and, and antivirals is becoming uh, that much more pronounced, or there's something else going on. Right. And that's actually an interesting note that if you go back and look at the 2017-2018 data, they didn't have a spike in um, positive flu tests either. So something was going on that year as well. Well, and, and, um, and, and so and, and let's take a step back and let's just assume for the sake of argument that you're, you're on to something. And, and, um, and, and this is true that, it, that the, the curve began or the way that we should conceive the curve is beginning uh, at, uh, as much as 60 days prior to the start date that's been attributed to it. Why, why does that right. matter so much? It matters a lot. It matters a lot because um, the models that um, that we have built this lockdown policy around, this lockdown policy that um, undoubtedly is doing economic harm, uh, not just economic, um, human human lives. Yes. We can talk about that. In a minute, yeah. Um, is predicated on uh, what's known as the CFR, which is a case fatality rate. And in order to determine a case fatality rate, you have to know how many people have died uh, divided by total cases. Um, so that'll tell you um, an approximate proportion of the likelihood of any given person dying of a disease. So in these models, instead of using, um, you know, it's tough to use data that we don't know. We don't, how can you include the, um, how can you include the cases you're not aware of? Well, if we know that 80% are asymptomatic, we could add that in. But nonetheless, um, those numbers aren't being used as the denominator. The denominator is being predicated on known cases. So we have this extraordinarily high case fatality rate, um, which quite frankly scares people and panics them um, and makes and justifies the lockdown. Like we we can't let this thing spread if it's going to kill 5% of people. Um, But if the true case fatality rate is closer to 0.2%, then it seems reasonable to take less drastic measures that will turn out to be less harmful. Well, right. And, and now uh, from the revisions to the Imperial College London model to the revisions to the IHME model with respect to both right. hospitalizations as well as projected fatality. I mean, there it is a massive discounting that's going on, which is great news. But in, in the respect of, you know, eliminating human suffering and death, and that's what everybody wants to do. But it's concerning right. news in, with respect to the decisions that are the, the predicates for the decisions that are being made. And it, it's interesting because I, I spoke to um, Dr. Ann Shukit, who's the principal mm-hmm. deputy director of the CDC. And uh, on the question of models, she basically said, look, the, the CDC uh, uh, doesn't even pay attention to the numbers. We just look for you know, directional indications because we understand that uh, the models are only so good. It's, it, it's as good as the data. And we understand that right. we have incomplete data, that we don't have a denominator. But, but uh, to your point, uh, almost no one who has a public platform, including President Trump, has said, don't pay attention to the numbers. Everybody has said, right. pay attention to the numbers. That's why we're making these decisions. Exactly. We're, we're pointing people to the numbers. Um, I, was, I live in Arizona, and I was just looking at the um, Arizona um, 
health department numbers just this morning um, and they tweeted uh, with the hashtag um, something like COVID response. Um, 64% of our beds are full, or of our ICU um, capacity is full, and 64% of our beds are full. If you go and look at the actual numbers, um, <laughs> Arizona has uh, 50, roughly 15,000 hospital beds and um, 1,500 ICU beds. Uh, the numbers they're reporting um, are not are not in line with those statistics. We we have. Uh, let's see, looking at about 400 hospitalized and about 150 in the ICU. And yet they're reporting those numbers under the hashtag COVID tracking. So that's giving people the wrong information. It's inferring the wrong information. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me how uh, pronouncements are accepted without any demand for the production of evidence or an explanation or, or the basis for for an educated guess that you're making and distinguishing between what we know to be true, uh, where we're making educated guesses and so forth. Um, so uh, this piece is a valuable addition to the conversation. We're pleased to have been joined by AJK. She's a freelance writer and researcher. Check out her piece, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. The curve is already flat. AJ, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, we would uh, be remiss if we didn't remark upon the passing of Linda Tripp. Uh, my first presidential election, first presidential election I voted in was 92. I held my breath and voted for H.W. Bush, uh, you may recall Bill Clinton won that election. Yeah. And then you may recall about uh, six years later, he was impeached for uh, lying under oath. Uh, his uh, sex scandal with Monica Lewinsky, who Linda Tripp secretly recorded, and she was instrumental in the star investigation. Not exactly uh, friendly with Monica Lewinsky. And, you know, you feel bad for Monica Lewinsky, young girl at the time and everything that she's endured, the the scarlet letter she wears uh, for her entire life because of the scandal and because of the ghastly uh, treatment by uh, that she received at the hands of the Clintons, you know, Hillary Clinton's vast right wing conspiracy conjecture and all that. It was interesting because as news broke on Wednesday that Linda Tripp was near death, she passed away uh, due to pancreatic cancer, as I understand it. Lewinsky tweeted that she hoped for her recovery no matter the past. You know, Lewinsky actually, as an adult, has been, you know, pretty, pretty responsible, has tried to take the high road more often than not, while still holding the Clintons accountable for being the reprehensible people that they actually are. And uh, so on behalf of uh, Linda Tripp and, frankly, Monica Lewinsky, we don't want to uh, forget the instant classics Bill Clinton gave us during that impeachment saga, since uh, the two of them won't seem to go away. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Yeah, his Khrushchev routine notwithstanding, it turned out that uh, it was Bill Clinton who was false, right? You remember this famous exchange in the deposition a few months later after the, on the uh, topic. Whether or not Mr. Bennett knew your relationship 
with Ms. Lewinsky, the statement that there was no sex of any kind, in any manner, shape or form with President Clinton was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And, uh, of course, that was uh, <laughs> instantly parodied brilliantly by The Simpsons. So when somebody says I was an embarrassment to the country, I say it depends on what the meaning of was is, jerk. <laughs> you owe me $200,000. Good night, everybody. Uh, good stuff. More good stuff. No safe spaces. This is the number one political documentary of 2019. You know who uh, put it together, our friend Dennis Prager and his friend Adam Carolla. They reveal how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas, and they do so in an entertaining and powerful way. 99% audience rating at RottenTomatoes.com, the highest of any rating for any film in 2019. You can't get it on the streaming services because the politically correct uh, Praetorian Guard in Hollywood doesn't want you to see it which is why you should see it. And now you can see it for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Check out nosafespaces at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show, both Facebook and Twitter, at Proft Dan on Instagram. Yesterday, uh, on Wednesday, you had uh, a back-and-forth, sort of siloed back-and-forth between the uh, head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros from Ethiopia, and President Trump on the matter of uh, President Trump this week questioning whether or not the United States would still continue providing funding for the World Health Organization based on its performance during this pandemic and it's uh, seeming flacking, I think more than seeming, flacking for the Chinese communists. Here's what Dr. Tedros had to say at a presser in Geneva. Across other differences that we have, across ideology, when there is a crack at the national level between political parties, between religious groups, or between other groups, that's when the virus gets a crack that it can exploit and defeat us. So number one is the national unity working across party lines. I was a politician. I know how difficult this could be. I know it. Although it's difficult, it's the right thing to do. At the end of the day, the people belongs to all political parties. The focus of all political parties should be to save their people Please don't politicize this virus. It exploits the differences you have at the national level. If you want to be exploited, and if you want to have many more body bags, then you do it. If you don't want many more body bags, then you refrain from politicizing it. And Trump responded. Well, I think when you say more body bags, I think we would have done... And he would have been much better serving the people that he's supposed to serve if they gave a correct analysis. I mean, everything was, I said, China-centric. 
everything was going to be fine, no human to human, uh, keep the borders open. He wanted me to keep the borders open. I closed the borders despite him, and that was a hard decision to make at the time. We were all together. We made a decision against the World Health Organization. When you talk about uh, politics, I can't believe he's talking about politics when look at the relationship they have to China. So China spends 42 million, we spend 450 million, and everything seems to be China's way. That's not right. It's not fair to us. And honestly, it's not fair to the world. And uh, as we mentioned yesterday in our conversation with Gordon Chang, it's not just uh, the WHO's relationship with China. It's Dr. Tedros's relationship. Uh, he, he mentioned he was a politician in Ethiopia, and he was part of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which is uh, backed by China. It's the Chinese Communist Party that turned the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa into the city that China built. CCP funding of construction of everything from the metro system to highways and skyscrapers, $200 million headquarters of the African Union. Also, when the Ethiopian Djibouti Railway was built, the export impact of China backed the project with $3.3 billion in loans. The country sports Ethiopia, 400 Chinese investment projects valued at more than $4 billion. That's relevant, it seems to me. A lot more relevant than uh, President Trump's uh, $100 position in a blind trust in some French pharma company, don't you think? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Yu. He is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, Dan, thanks for having me back. Well, I know you have this uh, very provocative piece in National Review that I want to get to in, in detail. But but start with uh, Dr. Tedros and the WHO. Is is Trump right to raise this issue of uh, America's support for the World Health Organization and the World Health Organization's performance during this pandemic to date? Oh, yes. I think, sadly, the WHO is just joining a long list of international institutions and bodies that have become Uh, steadily corrupted by China or have become more and more anti-American or anti-Israel or anti-West. And this has been going for a long time. Unfortunately, WHO is yet another one. You can see uh, just in some of the facts you mentioned earlier, uh, the WHO is just completely wrong about this pandemic. They issued reports that the virus could not be communicated person to person. Uh, They recommended that countries not impose travel bans. Uh, they have done everything they could in the beginning of the outbreak to cooperate with the Chinese Communist Party in uh, downplaying, reducing, or even covering up how fast this virus was spreading and how lethal it was. And so it's not saying again, the United States is one of the largest funder of the WHO, uh, it, so we have a lot of influence there to try to get to clean up its act. But unfortunately, like a lot of these other international bodies, it's become corrupted by these radical, left-wing, Marxist, anti-Western international bureaucrats. Your uh, Hoover Institution colleague, Lan He Chen, friend of the show, writing in the Wall Street Journal, uh, suggests the U.S. should work aggressively to change the culture and leadership of the WHO, and if it can't, then it may have to walk and start over with a different organization. Uh, do you think it's possible to change the culture and leadership there? No, I think actually the better thing to do would be just to start over again. Uh, you know, this is the reason why we have things like the WHO. Uh, they shouldn't get a second chance. This is the biggest public health catastrophe in 100 years. And according to several studies, if this outbreak had been 
detected stopped early on by transparency, by letting in doctors and scientists from the West into China. It could be the case that over 90 percent of the harms that have been caused could have been avoided. I don't see why you want to reform something has failed so badly. And it's not that there aren't <clears throat> excuse me, models for things that we could do instead. The United States and other Western nations could get together and create their own international health organization, one that shares information, and then we could uh, invite <clears throat> excuse me, other countries to join that would, uh, in exchange for aid or assistance, we don't have to have these kind of UN bodies. This is not the only one where people from terrible countries, terrible governments, get to assume positions of leadership from which they can attack the West. You mean like uh, the UN where uh, China and Russia have a veto on the Security Council, veto power on the Security Council? Yeah, this is where I, I, I exactly right, and this is where I think some ideas for uh, making China pay aren't going to work. You hear a lot of proposals by a lot of very thoughtful uh, people in the United States, a lot of scholars and intellectuals and former policymakers that we should go to some international court, or we should go to the Security Council. Uh, those are all going to fail, one, because those bodies are weak. Uh, as you said, China and Russia have vetoes on the Security Council. And then the other point is China is going to ignore them anyway. I mean, look at what China's been doing in Hong Kong. Look at what China's been doing in the South China Sea. Uh, when, they, when they don't think international law or international institutions meet their needs, they just brush it aside and go ahead and do what they were going to do anyway. And uh, it, it, there's a piece in the, uh, another piece in the journal, Robert Zolek, former head of the World Bank, sort of uh, doing his best to prop up all these international institutions whose uh, legitimacy you're questioning. And uh, and, and it, it seems to me this is the posture that those internationalists always take, which is it, what he's really insinuating is there's a failure of American leadership here and we need America, uh, the American uh, political elites to do more in, in, in furtherance of leadership and international collaboration and sort of all these gooey platitudes that turn out to be uh, wholly impractical because of the actual superstructures you're describing. Yeah, first of all, you know, that was once the view of most America's foreign policy uh, elite, and maybe it made sense 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But the thing that changed is that you have a country, China, and you have others like Russia and Iran, who don't want to work through those institutions, who want to drag them down and destroy them, or they're going to abuse them and corrupt them. It doesn't mean these institutions are not like our Constitution. They're not democratic. They don't, they're never, we never vote on them. Uh, they are often, often contrary to not just our interests, but for what's best for the world. Uh, they waste terrible amounts of money. And so I don't see why, when they have outlived their usefulness, when they're actually being turned against us, why the United States and our allies don't just replace them and create them with uh, new ones. Uh, take the trade where China has really been eating our lunch and everybody else's lunch for many decades. They've been stealing our trade secrets. They have been cheating uh, in, their, uh, in their use of subsidies and government corporations. I don't see why, uh, you know, we create a world with free trade because it was best for us and it was best for the world. But there are countries like China that have taken advantage of it. That doesn't mean we have to still keep letting them take advantage of us. We should change those institutions into something uh, new. Uh, just and, replace them. And when we come back, I want to get uh, some of Professor Yu's ideas about what uh, a new model will look like, as well as some uh, thoughtful ways in which uh, China can be held to account by America for uh, what they have done with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
More with John Yu. He is a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. We'll be back right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Professor Yu, you talk about what a new WHO could look like in terms of at least a model to apply to this area of global health. You suggest the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, that the inspection regime they have is a good uh, way to reconceive a World Health Organization. Yeah, so if we still want to replace the WHO as something that would be international, let's get rid of the big bureaucracy and just turn it into something that conducts inspections that allows people to go and verify whether other countries are living up to their agreements. And if they're not, they're not, and we will all know about it. So the best thing that could have happened, I think, in this with this Chinese uh, viral pandemic is that at the beginning, <clears throat> American and European, Asian scientists and doctors be allowed to go in and see immediately what's going on and then try to recommend uh, policies for their own countries to undertake to try to stop it. And then the countries like the United States, we will share information. I'm sure that when we discover, as we will, <clears throat> vaccines or cures, that we're going to tell the rest of the world about it. Instead, what you had was China corrupting the WHO, getting it to cooperate, because China didn't want people to know. This is not the first time this has happened before. This happened with SARS also. China and its officials, the Chinese Communist Party, wanted to cover up and conceal what was going on because it made their party look bad. They don't care whether uh, people in their own country die. Uh, They'd rather just stay in power. And so uh, what we need are institutions which are not subject to that kind of control by China that can just go in and tell the world what's going on and then step aside and let the United States and other countries decide what they want to do about it. And with respect to making China pay, since we can't rely on on the Hague or we can't rely on the World Trade Organization in the area of trade, or we can't rely on these, the U.N. Uh, because of what we talked about earlier, some things we can do. Uh, one area that you touch upon, which uh, we discussed with Peter Wood from the National Association of Scholars on yesterday's show, is in higher education. Yeah, so one thing is it's we should disabuse ourselves of the uh, idea that, well, if we don't have these international bodies like the U.N. to do something about it, we're helpless. Instead, the way it has been for most of the history of the world is that countries engage in self-help. If some country does harm to us and the other countries in the world, then we respond with the means at our own hands. And so here there's a lot of things you could do. One thing, of course, you could do is uh, cut China off from the sources of scientific knowledge and research uh, that they have been trying to take advantage of for the last 30, 40 years. They send hundreds of thousands of students and scientists and researchers to the United States every year. And just as many, I'm sure, go to other, you know, to the rest of the world, too. Uh, they are benefiting from all the money that the U.S. taxpayer pours into research and development of technology and science, and particularly here in biotechnology. I don't see why, if they are going to misuse that information, if they're going to fall down in their obligations, why they should continue to have access 
uh, to that kind of knowledge and work. Uh, in the uh, economic uh, arena, in terms of making it hurt their pocketbooks uh, directly, uh, whereas uh, cutting off the supply of training their uh, knowledge workers, if you will, uh, is one way to do it sort of over time. Um, you suggest that um, maybe these uh, trade deals, uh, $250 billion in ag product purchases or the promise of that maybe isn't worth it. Maybe you send the message through strength and you start seizing assets of uh, Chinese state-owned companies. This is not because we hate the Chinese people or we want China to suffer. Right. It's because we want the Chinese government, the Communist Party, to understand that what they're doing it may help them. They may have this weird view that even though lots of people die in China and even more in the world, trillions of dollars lost just in the United States alone. You know, tens of thousands of people will die. Hundreds of thousands will become sick. That's okay because they stay in power. All those other costs that they inflict on the world, they don't suffer. Well, they're not going to stop unless we impose costs on them. And so, as you say, one of the one of the things that would strike at the heart of the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is to hurt them economically. And one of the ways you do that is trade sanctions. You could uh, stop allowing them access to our trade our markets in such favorable terms in terms of agriculture, in terms of high tech, in terms of letting uh, Chinese high tech companies try to sell 5G equipment, make them suffer financially. That's the, that will undermine their economy which is the only reason why regular, ordinary Chinese people uh, believe in the, in the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. And then ultimately, it could go farther, as you suggest, uh, and this is things the United States and other countries have done in the past, is you could seize the assets of the, not just the Chinese government, but many of the companies which have large, uh, large stakes owned by the Chinese government, and let's take that money and use it to compensate the many people in the United States who have been harmed by the virus. I mean, this is this is, you know, essentially would be treating uh, China like a, a state sponsor of terror when you're talking about freezing assets and seizing assets. Yeah. So yeah, we, we have no problem saying, OK, these are things we'll do to a country that has hurt us in other ways, launching terrorist attacks, supporting terrorist groups. Well, China has harmed us just as much as or even more than many of those other countries have hurt us. Now, one could say, well, China didn't do it deliberately. Maybe uh, it was an outbreak. It was a natural disaster. But I said there is fault here. They are. It's not that they are innocent. They deliberately covered up the virus. So, you know, the the chain of events is quite clear. You could just go check it in public sources about how they even punished their own doctors and government officials who tried to tell their own people and the world about what was going on in China. So why shouldn't we consider things that will make them pay? Again, not not out of revenge, uh, not to take territory, I mean, just to teach them a lesson so that they will know that when they do these terrible things that impose costs on the rest of the world, they're going to have to pay for the cost of that. What about our posture towards Taiwan and uh, being uh, more overtly friendly to Taiwan, uh, recognition of Taiwan, and particularly after this, the egregious way that Taiwan has been treated by the World Health Organization, most notably and powerfully when uh, the number two at WHO just ended an interview with a Taiwanese reporter rather than uh, contemplate Taiwan as an example of how to uh, effectively manage the viral outbreak. Uh, that's a, Dan, that's a great point. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about it in the article. I wish I had. Um, one other way to really make the Chinese Communist Party uh, suffer and pay for the costs they've inflicted on us is to back up, boost 
the countries that are Chinese, but show that there's a different way possible. Look at Taiwan. They are they're Chinese. They have the same culture, language, the same people. Uh, and you see how well they've done with the virus uh, because they have a democratic government and a capitalist economy. Or Hong Kong. That's why Hong Kong is important. There's no way the United States could ever stop China physically from seizing Hong Kong. But we want to support it because it shows you how much better life could be for the Chinese people if they threw off the Chinese Communist Party or reformed it into a, you know, a democracy with capitalism and see how well they can do with yeah. responding to the virus. It doesn't have to be this big brother world where the government is watching everything, controls everything, and is even killing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of its own people just because it doesn't want to look bad in the way it handled a virus. Let's consummate the example Tank Man set uh, 30 years ago. How about that? John Yu, Emmanuel Heller, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Professor Yu, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, Dan, anytime. Thank, Thank you very much. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and a question that Trump is being asked more frequently and good uh, so he doesn't uh, always have to be the one to volunteer it is what are the triggers for beginning to reopen the American economy? And again, uh, we stipulate it's not the president's job. He can't order a national shutdown. He can't, quote, wait, reopen the economy. But everyone understands practically that states are responding to the guidelines being promulgated by the feds. What is your plan to do that? Well, I think we can say that we have to be on that downside of that slope and heading to a very strong direction that uh, this thing is gone. Now, we could do it in phases. We can go to some areas, which you know, some areas are much less affected than others. But it would be nice to uh, be able to open with a big bang and open up our country, or certainly most of our country. And I think we're going to do that soon. You look at what's happening. I would say we're ahead of schedule. Now, you hate to say it too loudly because all of a sudden things don't happen. Uh, But uh, I I think we will be sooner rather than later. But we'll be sitting down with the professionals. We'll be sitting down with many different people and making a determination. And those meetings will start taking place fairly soon. So you wouldn't do that until the health experts tell you it's safe to do it? Yeah, I would uh, rely very heavily on them, yeah. Uh, It's fairly interesting because uh, you have uh, reports of some companies uh, planning to begin reopening their countries uh, in the next uh, week to two weeks. Germany, Austria, Norway, Denmark, some never fully closed, Japan, Singapore, Sweden. And uh, the caseloads and confirmed fatalities and rates, uh, fatality rates at this point among those countries, yeah, there's some some degree of variance. So it's just interesting to note uh, people making different decisions based on incomplete data uh, and uh, very disparate uh, lethality rates and caseloads. For more on the topic from an economic perspective, we're pleased to be joined by Joachim Book. He is a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. Joachim, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. 
So um, when you uh, see uh, what's happening in Sweden, for example, and uh, again, that's a, a country that never fully shut down. Schools are open, though, for uh, older kids, they're supposed to stay at home. And But restaurants and libraries and swimming pools, all that stuff is open. Uh, and then now some countries, uh, Austria, Germany, are going to start coming back online. So ha- goes the reporting. And yet the U.S. is still in this nether space. How do you reconcile some of the decision, the basis for the decisions you're being uh, you're seeing being made country to country? I mean, that must, that must be very hard for anybody to make those kinds of calls right now, because, as you say, we have very incomplete data and it's not clear that the shocks are similar all over the place and the response are similar all over the place. Um, as, as a scientist or as an economist, it's very uh, grateful because in hindsight, we get to study this and we can see, you know, what worked and what didn't. Uh, but uh, being the person in charge right now, having to make those calls isn't exactly um, a, a grateful a, a grateful job, I suppose. Uh, you've written about Sweden specifically, though, and, and uh, the things you think Sweden has got directionally right in terms of their response. What are some examples of that? I have. So what, what struck me as uh, very important from this was that Sweden didn't really lose its head the way um, it seemed, at least from uh, from media coverage and all um, that American or uh, British politicians did. Um, rather, they just deferred to the experts and basically followed their leads uh, rather than trying to project confidence and like um, act politician, you know, like they're part of the role of being a president, especially in, in English speaking countries, um, is to, to show everybody that you're, you're the boss, you know, best, and you're going to make the tough choices. Uh, but most of the time they don't have that information. Most of the time they're not really in charge of anything. Um, you know, this, this is um, an economy and a healthcare system with millions and millions of moving parts. Um, there's no reason anybody could think to govern it centrally from Washington or London or anywhere else. Um, so I think Sweden has done that very well to just deflect to local authorities, deflect to uh, to the experts. Um, and when the experts said, well, it's not really going to help us to close the schools because it's too late in the process and we need um, the, the parents working in the, in the healthcare sector, we kind of need them to, uh, to to stay in the hospitals and not, um, not stay at home looking after their kids. Um, the politicians follow their advice. Um, and I've I, I noted a lot that um, society seems to be working vaguely the way it used to before the crisis. People take a bit more, um, um, people are a bit more um, careful what they do. They maintain their distances, but things are open and things work. Um, and it doesn't seem to be as crazy as it has in, in some parts of the U.S. When we come back with uh, Joachim Book, I want to get to this other matter of uh, capitalism or socialism which philosophy comes out uh, the winner uh, after this pandemic has subsided. More with uh, Joachim Book. He is a visiting scout at the American Enterprise, excuse me, at the American Institute for Economic Research. We'll be right back. Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Joachim Book. He is a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. And uh, Joachim, uh, the issue of uh, you know capitalism and uh, the failures of capitalism. This is a topic of uh, 
much interest to a D.C. press corps that doesn't so much sympathize with free minds and free markets as a general rule. And so a lot of emphasis on boy how supply chains were constructed incorrectly by private companies, particularly those whose supply chains extend into mainland China. And uh, we're going to have to learn some lessons from what has come to pass during this pandemic. As Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has said, you know, rethink capitalism for the 21st century. Yeah, it's kind of weird that the particular politicians who are not exactly in the enterprising world know better how to run companies than um, the owners and the managers of those companies themselves. That strikes me as a bit odd. But moreover, it's like all these people calling for the fragility of, of capitalism. And look how fragile our uh, vulnerable our supply chains are, and we source everything from abroad and whatever. To me, it, it rings a bit odd when we know that part of the reason that we're so wealthy and part of the reason that we're so productive is that we have an integrated world supply chain and that we can specialize in what we do best and trade with, uh, with other countries and other people for what they do best. Uh, this is a fundamental economic insight going back centuries. And it's not like economic life is a pick whatever you want and then ditch the rest. Like institutions and production of wealth and all the kind of stuff that we as economists talk about, they come as a package. Sometimes some parts of that package makes it easier for a viral disease to spread across the world, like we're experiencing now. But it has also made us much, much richer than our, our ancestors, and it puts us in a much, much better position to deal with whatever crisis you know, the world throws at us. It also sort of starts from some uh, dubious premises, right, that uh, the uh, capitalist, the entrepreneur, the business person, they're very fallible. They're going to make mistakes, uh, and, and we're all going to pay the consequences of their mistakes if they're big enough. The uh, central planner, the politician, the elected official, they are infallible. And uh, the only decisions they make are for the good of the many. Yeah, I think that that fallacy has been debunked uh, frequently in the economics literature. And it's kind of silly to believe that people, just because they, they, they take on a politician path, all of a sudden become um, uh, omniscient and perfect in every, every, every single way. Right. And so this is a debate that's happening in real time. I mean, one of the things that's striking in America, to me, less so than some of the absurd proposals from politicians or pronouncements or uh, blame shifting is that people in America, despite what, how you were suggesting we became the wealthiest country the world has ever seen, are so ready and willing to give up their private property rights and all sorts of other individual rights in the name of some promised panacea, absolute security at the, at the hands of the state. Yeah, I don't really get that. My experience is from having been in the U.S. and you know, talking to American people, most of the time is that they have a very healthy skepticism of, of, of government. They have a very strong sense of, 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 of independence. And, you know, um, I, I, I take care of myself and my, my family and my, my loved ones, my community. But then again, on the other hand, we have, you know, as soon as there is some kind of disturbance somewhere, it's like, okay, hand over power to state governors and, right. you know, the police or presidents uh, uh, or whatever. Uh, I don't really get, I, I can't really, you know, fit those two ideas together. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, different populations have different approaches within the country, of course. But I also think that you're right. There is a certain schizophrenia among some who are otherwise commonsensical and pragmatic, but uh, run to a state they're otherwise skeptical of in a time of most need uh, that it is hard to reconcile that philosophically. I, I wonder, though, in terms of um, thinking about uh, uh, how well, America is holding up, how well some Western countries are holding up versus perhaps 
some of uh, when and maybe we haven't quite seen the full effects of this yet, but how uh, other countries that are less capitalist capitalist in orientation may hold up in this. If that may buttress the case for uh, protecting our free enterprise system and returning to it just as quickly as we can, even amid all of the government interventions at present. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if people say, look, uh, China dealt with this much, much better than we did. Uh, so we should be, become more like China in the future. Um, and I mean, that's when all the when all this um, when the dust is settled, we sort of have to figure that out statistically and see who um, what different kinds of approaches cost, what different kinds of approaches meant in terms of people dead and um, um, and, and hurt and harmed from this. Um, so it's kind of too early to say anything about that. But I, I, I suspect that um, there's a there's a an element of freedom and 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 and, and liberty that um, people in the West, particularly in the U.S., would be very um, uh, wouldn't very wouldn't be very happy to give up. Um, and I'm not an expert in, on on China or Southeast Asia or anything like that. But they, some of the, the stories that came out of that were pretty um, uh, pretty stunning. You know, people basically sent to their homes. Yeah, well, right. And and thankful. I mean, you know, unfortunately, because it's a lot worse because of what China chose to do. But fortunately, in the sense of being prospective, people have seen, I, I think, have some scales fall from some eyes and seen China for what it is and certainly don't want that sort of totalitarian society uh, to visit uh, America. So that's the good news. But it seems to me the challenge is you you need to make the arguments. This is a time where Americans are sort of re- getting a civics lesson in federalism, and that could be a good thing for the future of federalism in our representative republic. Seems like uh, we this is a good time for a little bit of uh, Econ 101 as well. Yeah, absolutely. I found uh, there was an episode on Planet Money maybe a few weeks ago um, on how, how uh, General Motors just revamped much of their uh, production capacity to do things. Like this was before Trump um, invoked that uh, military order um, that, made, that made him able to, what's it called? The Defense um, Production Act, right? Yeah, yeah. it was before he invoked that one, and, uh, and General Motors' private enterprise had already uh, done exactly the kind of things that he uh, later proposed that he wanted to do. You know, like he went into the production of all these things that were missing, ramping up the production of masks and ventilators and um, and things all over the place, source stuff from India. Like they were way ahead of it. And then, you know, politicians um, arrive at the sea and two weeks later, um, <laughs> right. invoking some law and taking credit for things. It's, it's kind of stunning to me. Well, and, uh, and uh, you know, one optimistic note, a silver lining here is the standing of big pharmaceutical companies uh, has improved in the public's eye. You know, easy whipping boys, the big pharmaceutical companies, big companies generally. But those big companies like the automakers that are not making ventilators and like 3M and like the pharmaceutical companies, uh, people are now seeing the tangible value of uh, companies that are able to do what those companies are doing in response to this crisis and uh, how reliant we are on what they are able to do, the innovations that they've made, the productive capacity that they have, and and um, uh, and how beneficial it is to our quality of life. So uh, hopefully that is something upon which we can build. He is Joachim Book. He is a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. Joachim, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. I'm taking my time, but I don't know where. Goodbye to Rose and the Queen of Corona. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Oh, 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Joe Biden, fresh off uh, the uh, news that uh, Bernie Sanders has left the race, and so now he can focus uh, singularly on his uh, VP and trying to regain relevance in this contest during this pandemic. Had uh, this to offer about uh, the health insurance aspect of it with, uh, you know, 17 million people now filing for unemployment benefits over the last three weeks. We have to make sure everyone has access to maintain and maintain affordable health insurance coverage. We should be making it easier, not harder, to make sure to make sense to, you know, let me put it another way. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. We have to make sure to make sense, make sense because otherwise we're making no sense. It's an important point he makes. It's also the reason I think Dave Barry isn't watching uh, news coverage of the pandemic. Dave Barry, the great Miami Herald uh, columnist and author, hysterical. His end of the year summations of the year must reading for a couple of decades at least. Uh, he has written about coronavirus and it's good stuff. On day 43,000 of sheltering in place, I decided to make a face mask, writes Barry. For a while, they were saying we civilians didn't need to wear face masks, but now they're saying that we should. At least I think that's what they're saying. Because uh, the only way to know is to turn on the TV news. And I don't want to do that because it sounds like this news person. Coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. For more on this, here's a different news person located somewhere else for safety reasons. Different news person. Coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. Now back to you. News person. Thank you. Coronavirus, coronavirus. Yeah. And so on for 24 hours a day. <laughs> it's about it. it's uh, only slightly hyperbolic. Uh, he uh, goes on anyway. I think we're supposed to wear masks now. And. He's concerned because neither he nor his dog, Lucy, have masks. He can't sew. So he decided that if he has to go to a public place, he's going to wear a bandana. My preference would be for a conservative bandana. He writes, ideally navy blue. But the only spare bandanas available in my household are ones from my daughter's old summer camp, Camp Highlander. They're quite colorful. When I wear one over my face, I look like a festive bank robber. But I will wear my bandana and I will keep sheltering and I and social distancing and washing my hands and avoiding touching my face and whatever else uh, they tell us we need to do. If tomorrow they tell us that everyone should duct tape a spatula to his or her forehead, then by God, I will duct tape a spatula to my forehead because I really, really want this to be over. I don't mean to sound overly negative. So my far, my family and I are doing OK. I hope you are, too. But we're all in this together. So if you happen to see me in the supermarket, I'll be the festive bank robber. We can give each other a supportive wave from a safe social distance, and then we can fight over the lone remaining spatula. I hear they're running out. Love Dave Barry. Something else to watch when you're not uh, shopping with the spatula over your face with Dave Barry in a supermarket. No Safe Spaces, nosafespaces.com, the number one political documentary of 2019. Our friends Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla on how America is becoming a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas. Hollywood doesn't want you to see it, but Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla do, which is why, for limited time only, you can stream it at nosafespaces.com. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.